Hello, creative strategist. Thank you so much for being with me again today. This is going to be one incredible episode. My friend Rochelle is going to help us figure out this whole design thing. For some of you, this is a super abstract concept. You're thinking, I know what looks good. I follow my favorite Instagram accounts and I love the aesthetic of their feed. But when it comes to making top quality design choices for your business or your brand, it can be a bit of a mystery. For others of you, you're thinking, yes, I am a designer who loves learning from other designers. I totally have a green thumb when it comes to creating, but I want to learn more from a seasoned professional about what's hot in the industry, how I can grow in my career, and how I can make money on my own time doing what I love. Well, my friends, whichever boat you are in, this episode is for you. Rochelle Pelliser is a creator and a collaborator who graduated from Illinois Institute of Art in Chicago. She has worked for MTV, Apple, and Disney, casual, no big deal, (laughs) and fell into the fashion industry, developing accessories and designing prints and textile patterns for many years. She left the country to live in Hong Kong, start Saddleback Hong Kong, while consulting for an e-commerce brand. She's worked for Saddleback Church on the campus events team and purpose-driven communications as a graphic designer. She now works for an in-house marketing agency for a healthcare tech company and side hustles like the best of them as a project manager, social media manager, and all things design. She's a huge foodie, girl, me too, loves to garden, and loves to serve her church in any way she can. She's really just an amazing, amazing person. Today, she is going to break down the different aspects of design. We're going to talk about tailoring design to your client and their demographics, aesthetic, cohesive campaigns, designing for different marketing channels, social media, project management, and more. Buckle up and get out a notebook. This one is going to be juicy. But before we get into it, I just, of course, need to talk about reviews. If you're loving the podcast and you like what we're bringing forward, me and my guest, you like what we're serving you each week, and you appreciate the content that we're providing, go ahead and leave a positive review wherever you're listening, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, you name it. I really, really appreciate that. Your positive reviews, they boost this podcast and get us in front of people who can be empowered by this message that your dreams can become a reality. We're working hard, we're creating, we're having fun, and we're all learning together. So if you guys could take a moment to do that, that would be amazing. But without further ado, let's get to Rochelle's episode. listening to The Creative Strategist. I'm your host, marketing and sales expert, Star Jerry's, and I'm here to help you use storytelling, design, and entrepreneurial thinking to develop your brand's voice, boost sales, and stay relevant in an ever-changing marketplace. Join in on my conversations with seasoned professionals and take away best practices to help you forge ahead in your career. 
Again, I'm Star Jerry's, the creative strategist. Let's get started. Okay. <laughs> oh, hi, Rochelle. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I think you're just an amazing person inside and out, and your professional experience is just ridiculous. I mean, you're like superwoman with this resume. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. <laughs> thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here. This is my first podcast ever, so it'll either be amazing or a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be amazing. I've talked to you before, and you're so easy to talk to, and that's like really what it boils down to. I think people just want to hear it from someone that's normal and casual, and they just want to learn more um, in a setting where it doesn't feel quite so formal, so I'm glad that we can do something like this. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so let's get started with some questions. Well, can you tell me a bit about your story with your craft? Like, how did you get started with graphic design? Were you always good at art or design and knew that you wanted to pursue it? Or did you get a job straight out of college? Or did you kind of like fall into it? What did that look like? It's clear that you love creating. So what was your journey? Yeah. Uh, so, well, Backstory. I'll start from like way, way, way back. Um, my mom is a single mom and she raised me, but she worked a lot. Um, and so she would kind of like occupy me when she had to like work long hours with like drawing paper and crayons. And those were like the first memories I had with art. And then because she was working so much, my grandmother watched me a lot. And she's, she's literally the first creative, now that I look back on it, that I knew. She, she's, like sewed her own dresses, she drew pictures, she gardened, she was a baker, a maker, like a fashionista, like it was always a fashion show to see what she would wear for the day. So I, I really touched like art and the creative world at a young age. I also come from a family of singers and performers and so it was really very much around us all the time. Um, in school, I remember um, going to Montessori school and they're very all about, you know, going at your own pace and encouraging what kids are strong at, you know? And so if, if you showcase that you were strong at art, they would definitely enhance that environment for you. And then fast forward to high school. Um, so I went to high school in the Philippines and in, I remember it was my like senior year and my art teacher, who um, I was taking a higher level art class, which is, I guess, equivalent to advanced placement here, but it was the IB program, which is an international baccalaureate. And they had this like crazy standard of, um, you know, grading, et cetera. And it was before portfolio time. And she's like, I need to talk to you. And she sat me down and she basically gave me this like real heart to heart. She said, honey, if you don't know how to make money or a career or something using art, you're going to be in a lot of trouble in this life. Like just straightforward. Wow. Like you're going to struggle if you don't figure out, you know, how to make money in the, in the world of art. So obviously um, coming home with that in mind, that seed planted, I kind of like said, Oh, okay, I can go to art school. And I, struggled for about two years to really figure out what my path was. And when I finally got myself into design school and did that in Chicago and uh, took a bunch of random jobs to figure out what graphic design was, 
because at the time you had to study and you had to study like all the mediums like web, multimedia, video, print, you know, advertising. It was all in one degree versus now you can take those individualized. So it was very confusing too, because it's like, oh, what can I do now? Like I've learned all these skills. What can I do? And in between all that and my you know, young adult life. I love to travel. And I had a friend who was living in New York and she's like, come out and you could sleep on my couch and just figure it out. (laughs) So (laughs) I went there and I slept on her couch for like eight months and I landed a job in fashion graphics. And that's pretty much where it started. Um, I had no idea that there was even a career or position in fashion for a graphic designer. And, you know, these are like the times where screen printed t-shirts and hats and printed um, patterns and stuff were just sort of emerging in the market. And yeah, I spent like a good amount of my time in fashion. So that's, that's, (laughs) it's a long way to how it started, but it's all been like connected for sure. No, that's great. It's like the inception of Rochelle. (laughs) That's so funny that you worked in fashion doing print uh, design, because I don't think many people know what that is, but I used to work at Paige Denim, and I was a design assistant, and I remember sitting in those meetings, and there would be these swatches, these fabric, not swatches, they were bigger. They were like, you know what I'm talking about, but they were big pieces of fabric with prints on them and we would just sit there and look one by one by one and I always thought I got to meet a couple of the artists who did that but I always thought oh my gosh I want to meet someone who does this all the time and just ask them (laughs) what is that day-to-day life like was that a time where you really just were creating all the time was there a lot of strategy to that end or was that just like produce 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 and did you ever kind of like dry out when you did that and and come to a roadblock ever? Yeah. um, Fashion is super interesting because it's, it's driven by the trend. And unfortunately as a brand, you're not depicting that trend unless you're, you're that type of, let's say a Betsy Johnson at the time who was creating her own style and didn't care what other people were, were doing. Um, A lot of, the work was happening with these mass brands and these junior brands, the the Pac Suns, the hot topics of the world where they're just chasing a trend. And so in that environment, you definitely are just copying. Right. right? There's not a lot of organic creation. They would be maybe like 5% of the time. But the majority of the time was you were just following whatever other people or these larger, more expensive brands were doing. And then like tweaking it a little bit to make it slightly different. Correct. And affordable. Yeah. Right. I also worked at PacSun too. So that's interesting. Yeah. And then you have and then you have like the textile industry, which even before the fashion trends come, the textile industries are depicting what the next trends are because they're developing the material, right? So you have to start with the material first and then the fashion people come in. They're like, Oh, I love this material. And then they create. And so it's like, all of this is really years in the making, like two years, let's say at minimum. Yes. This trend start till they actually make it to market. So when it would hit my desk or like, you know, people would say, Oh, target needs a belt. Right. 
they've already pretty much know what they want. And it's basically like, here's give target what they want, um, but create maybe three or four other options that fit in sort of this style. And that's where you have the creative freedom is to give the options, but nine times out of 10, that they're going to choose the trend driven one, right. which is fine. And you, you, you already have that expectation, but sometimes they choose something that you've totally created. And that's really great. Um, in terms of like the burnout, it does, it's such a fast paced environment, fashion specifically. Um, and because you're always chasing trends and there's no more seasons, like there used to be spring, summer, fall, and you just plan for that. And now it's really just, I don't know, if you walk into a store, you see clothes coming in like every three weeks. All the They're time. changing. Right. Yeah. Because there's there's now 52 weeks seasons <laughs> and not four seasons in the year. Right. And I think the internet has a lot to do with that, like online shopping and and keeping up with Amazon and, you know, the whole how technology has really changed the way people shop. Yeah. So especially in fast fashion, I fast yes, fashion, I totally exactly. agree. Luckily, I mean, we were more, we were definitely on the higher end of things when I worked at Paige. So there were separate seasons, there was like resorts, there were the, these really staples that you would think of when you think of seasons, but that's because a higher end client is, is prepping their wardrobe, they buy earlier. But yeah. when you have fast fashion, you're right. It hits the floor. It hits the floor all the time. It's always coming and people are dressing instantaneously. Like the temperature dropped 20 degrees outside all of a sudden in November. Now I need a coat and they go get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so exactly. and, and, and all the stuff that goes along and then the, the retailers are catching up. That's why weather even like really messes with buying seasons for retail because if winter comes later or earlier, that totally screws up your sales plan. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. If people don't think that the inventory managers or the buyers are looking at weather on a daily basis, then uh, you're missing a, a huge part of, of fashion because we dress for the seasons. Clothing has a few functions and one of them is protection from the elements and and protection from weather. So seasonal or climate changes totally affect what's going on in, yeah. in the store. Well, I, I also think that fast fast fashion has changed the way we shop and our mindset in terms of we're not preparing for a season anymore. We just know it's going to be in the store whenever we need it. Yeah, and, and so it's that impulse buy, right? And so that's also changed the way that they, how they develop product. They're just waiting for us to react. <laughs> that's so true. I feel like you're already myth busting all these things that <laughs> that are design. I think from the outside looking in, like we've already talked about some misconceptions maybe of design, but from the outside looking in, it seems like this really self-grown thing, like it just comes out of you, but but especially when you are working with a client or you're working with in fashion or you're working with something that other people are going to be buying, you really have to think of, of who you're selling to. And a lot of it comes from like pulling things from different places. And there's a great monologue in Devil Wears Prada about how the design trickle, Mer, uh, Meryl Streep's character like runs down, how the design trickles from these like really top tier designers all the way down to to mainstream stores or even like bargain 
bargain basement kind of stores and that really shows the progression of like what you're talking about but I think another misconception of design is that you're just like painting and sketching (laughs) all day long so I didn't actually study design I just got really lucky and ended up being able to be a design assistant for that fabulous brand but I studied fashion merchandising so the closest we got even though I did do fashion sketches on the side of my own because my friends taught me. But the closest thing I got to that was learning Illustrator and Photoshop and all those things that you need. So can you talk a little bit more about how graphic design and technology are so intertwined? I mean, you're talking about Amazon kind of really being a big player like fast fashion with online shopping or e-commerce, but about design actual designing with tech um how they're so interwoven and um and what that's been like for you as times have changed like how often when you're designing are you on your computer it's probably almost 100% of the time <laughs> yeah you uh, definitely only use the computer in a in a corporate you know business setting there's really and okay so i will speak for myself and and you know, there's probably startups and all these other companies that are trying to change this process because they value creativity and the process of it and, and really like hashing out ideas and concepts. But in a in every environment and in every industry that I've worked in, there's never any time to quote unquote comp an idea. It's like I I I hardly ever have had the the luxury to sketch anything and then put it on the computer, um, and so skill set yes absolutely important no Adobe Creative Cloud uh, Illustrator Photoshop um, InDesign and uh, After Effects would be the top four those are the absolute minimum as a graphic designer, even just on a basic level to know how to um, work the interface. Um, I would say that a lot of your skill sets, yes, can start in school, but majority of the things that I've learned has been in the workplace and been, you know, in every design situation that I've been thrown into, I've learned something. I continue to learn something. Like Illustrator is probably my number one advanced skill set, and yet I still learn things, you know, on on the weekly. Whether I'm teaching myself or I've figured out a, a problem solved, you know, within a file. So just knowing your tools. I mean, it's just like you, you know, both of us are singers. So like, if we don't vocalize and, you know, really fine tune our vocal cords and practice and practice our harmonies. You know, you get to the, (laughs) you get to the time when you actually have to sing in front of people and it just, you you sound unpracticed. And it's the same thing with your tool set in, in design is really just immerse yourself in learning because the technology is also changing. Like I started, I think when Photoshop was Photoshop six. <laughs> and now there's nice. not even a number. I mean, it's Photoshop creative cloud, 2019. They don't even name it like where they're at in the stages of how far it's come as a software. So, um, yes, I use it on a daily basis. Even when I'm not working, I'm using illustrator and Photoshop, um, you know, with my freelance, or even if I just want to draw and draw out an idea. 
I'll, I'll sketch in Illustrator direct on the computer um, versus like on paper. Yeah. And I think it's repetition. Like you said, I, I mean, obviously my classes were not as intense as yours. We only had to take one illustrator class and then we got this like splash of photoshop at the end so I'm really novice with photoshop but um but I can definitely get by but illustrator I use all the time and that's mostly because my skill set got so stretched and so used during my time at page and it wasn't even the beginning part of my time there it was really towards the latter part but I was able to ask those questions to my boss I like was in these situations where I was forced to look up tutorials and and really practice and how do I use that pen tool again? And all those things came back. But now I force myself to use Illustrator when I know that I could slide by if I used PowerPoint and did something in a really easy way. But I force myself to go back to those tools so that I can keep my skills as sharp as possible, even though it's not as necessary where I am today. But I think you're right. Like, get in there. If you want, like, jump on. Uh, there's so many websites that'll, like, give you tests and and help the you university YouTube. <laughs> your university what I, I call it university youtube you know it's just <laughs> pick a subject and there's somebody out there who's who's definitely vlogged about it um i would say the adobe um tutorials they're very very good and they're made by the product developers of those applications so you're getting it straight from the person who created the pen tool who created you know um, a lighting effect or whatnot so those are valuable and free Um, and really just taking any like free workshops that you hear of just immerse yourself for sure I will say this um, tech has changed so much too because really you can design on your phone too. And I'm, I'm the first one to even try, like, can I do this on Canva? Can I do this on Procreate really quick without having to go on my computer, you know, set it all up and then have to send it to myself for, you know, a Facebook or an Instagram post that I'm, I'm creating for a client. So I, I do go to those tools that, you know, have been developed and um, trying to make my job easier. <laughs> or sometimes I like to think about taking over my job but at the same time nothing compares to the original you know where you can make something from scratch that you know no one else is going to look like this feel like this no one else is using this font um or this you know clip art so there's there's pros and cons to using a simpler program but I definitely would say if you're serious about graphic design, Adobe products are the way to go. Yeah, for sure. I love what you said about their tutorials. That's so true. They are so good. Watch them. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like everyone's taking notes already. So um, write that down. Go to Adobe. Get a tutorial. All right. So my next question, I want to switch gears a little bit because you started a church plant. Oh, of course, I'm getting a phone call. What? (laughs) My phone hasn't been off silent for 12 years, but now it rings. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. You started a church plant in a foreign country in Hong Kong, and you also worked as an e-commerce consultant. I would love to know more about that and what you were doing in your consulting role, how you kind of managed that, and then what it was like to work in a foreign country. Were there any cultural norms that you needed to figure out? What was that like? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. 
Um, so there's actually three parts to this uh, story. Uh, first of all, working in a foreign country was really uh, something that God had planted in my heart. And I, and I didn't know it at the time. You never know it at the time, really. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of... I won't say I was at a rock bottom, but I had come to the end of 2012 feeling very discouraged, feeling like, is this just going to be my life? Am I doing anything purposeful, et cetera? All the questions that you ask yourself when you're reflecting. And <laughs> I was sitting in a in a service and you know, Saddleback Church where I was attending in Lake Forest at the time. Pastor Rick said we were launching new campuses we had launched you know a few local campuses but now we were going to go international and at the time I was toying with the idea that I would the next job that I would take or adventure would be um, to live abroad again because I had gone for high school and so that was that kind of planted the seed of be like yeah you can actually have a career outside the United States you don't have to stay here and do design in the conventional way so as I was working through those ideas, the, the church plant sort of came in a long line with it. And it was really the fuel that got me to Hong Kong. It wasn't the job first. It was the ch church plant. And it was really this conversation that I had ongoing with God for several months. And I said, okay, if you, if you really want me to go and do this, first I need provision, like a job or how am I going to sustain myself? And how long should I stay? And, you know, and where should I live? And if those three questions were answered within the first couple months of me being there, then obviously that would be clear and evident that I should stay. And seven months go by. And not only have I fundraised my entire trip from random people, people who don't even go to Saddleback, people who my friends who are not even believers, um, supported my trip. So I said, okay, this is definitely God thing because he's sending money from all over. Wow. And they're supporting me to go plant a church, not to go be an e-commerce consultant. That part was like a mystery still. And I basically 2012 committed to going on this trip plan, not through Saddleback either. This was just literally me saying, I'm going to go move to Hong Kong, commit to being a volunteer and see what it, see where that takes me. And I flew out there in July of 2013 and the launch was October, 2013. And within those three, three and a half months, I landed a job, a place to live. And then I made, I had the audacity of saying I would stay a year, maximum two years and serve the church and work there. Uh, and you know, God showed up in every moment and every time. And so the the church plan in a foreign country, like I thought I was going to be a missionary in some grassroots program, pumping water out of a well. <laughs> and I ended up in this metropolitan city. That's basically the New York of Asia. You know, it, it's a, it's a financial capital, fashion capital. Um, it's their financial district in terms of where all the banks are based in Asia. So I, it wasn't out of my comfort zone. And um, side note, Manila was also opening at the same time. And most people were like, why didn't you go and launch that? And I said, you know what? It'd be too easy. Like I've lived there. I know people. 
it would become sort of like a, you know, long-term vacation and not really a challenge. And I felt like God was calling me to the challenge. Um, And so when I got there, uh, talking about the e-commerce consultant role, I had reached out to some of my business contacts. So this is how funny, like how full circle everything always comes. The years that I was working in the fashion industry, I had made all these contacts in China, specifically in Hong Kong and in Shanghai, business contacts. And some of them ended up being really cool and becoming friends. One specific friend owned a business, it was a trading business in based in Hong Kong, and I had been emailing him and saying, hey, how does an American come to Hong Kong and work legally and make good money? And he said, you know what? You have the best passport in the world. It is very easy for Americans to come here <laughs> and do business. And, and what he meant was, after the more research, uh, Americans are granted a 90-day visa every time they visit Hong Kong. It's just their arrangement by default. And so what usually people do, unless you're an expat that's being contracted by a corporate you know, um, a corporate company that is based in Hong Kong and then they can sponsor you for a visa. Most people who would go there, like myself, who are consulting, would just basically enter and exit the country every three months. So every time you exit, you end your visa and then you enter again and you renew your visa. And this is as simple as taking like a ferry ride to mainland China the same day and then coming back. Uh, and I was like, wow, really? That's simple? Wow. And then on top of that, a flight to the Philippines was an hour flight, and it was only $150 round trip. So I was like, oh, I could actually do a long weekend there and then come back and work. And it would just, it looked like the sweetest deal ever, right? So he's like, just come here and we'll figure it out. I'm like, okay. <laughs> God's taking care of all of these pieces, so I'm not going to worry about it. And and basically within a month and a half, I ended up consulting for his business and he was interested in uh, starting an e-commerce. And he, he's he's a European that had moved to Hong Kong about, you know, 11 years prior. So he was trying, he was running the company very like Western minded. But there was a lot of obstacles that he was facing with his staff, because when you come in with Western minded business strategies, but you but your staff is local, um, that's where the cultural difference and mindsets and goals actually work against you. And so you really spend a lot of time coaching people on how to think like a Western business person. And just to get into more detail about that, um, okay, this is a generalization and it's not meant to be stereotypical. It, it was just my firsthand experience. I think uh, Hong Kong culture and mainland China culture, they're very much taught to think only within certain restraints, within a box, let's say. Whereas US culture and European culture, you're taught to think outside the box. All the time, like push the boundaries, think, think more, go above and beyond. Like those are things we naturally hear. And that's not readily said to people in school, in work. They just, 
they're constantly just told to come do their job, stay within their boundaries, and go home and make the paycheck. And so there's there's a tension there because I'll, I'll give you an example. I took over. I became the consultant for this e-commerce called Slee.com. And I had asked one of the staff members, I said, hey, can you do some research for me? Put together a list of 10 influencers, top 10 influencers in Asia with X amount of following, and then make a spreadsheet and send it back to me. I didn't give her a deadline or anything. And so I checked in within like two weeks. I hadn't heard from her. I was like, let me see what she's doing. And I asked her, I said, how's that going? And she said, I got two and then I stopped. (laughs) and like my insides are kind of like okay this is interesting tell me why you had stopped when I asked you and you and you only did two and you thought that was good enough she had she had reached out and she'd done some research but she couldn't find any more so she stopped and rather than approaching me and saying this is all I could find she just said nothing and it it was like the sign to me that success and failure is so important in their culture that like it it like kind of immobilizes their their creativity it keeps them in their box and they're scared because they think they've failed because they couldn't complete the task and situations like this would happen all the time very similar where i start a project and and i ended up having to do a lot of these things myself and then i even convinced the company owner, I said, can I hire a virtual assistant based in the US or based in Europe? Because I'm not getting certain tasks done and it's really keeping me from moving forward in some of these projects. And eventually he said yes, because he totally understood where I was coming from. You know, marketing is like, you need to push and you need to do the research and and reach out to people. And it was it was like pulling teeth sometimes. And I think I I drilled it down to this sort of the contrast of they can only succeed and failure is not good enough and and not being allowed to think outside of the box. Those were the two things that I had left with while doing business there. So it's it's really hard because you can't change that. You can't you can't change a culture in that way. You can encourage and you can you know, try to push them internally and say, hey, this is okay. This is what I'm asking you for. But if that's innately what they're told, then it goes beyond you. And so in any setting, whether it's Asia or America or Africa or whatever, those are the things you'll always run into is the cultural differences that not everyone does everything the American way or not everybody has the expectations like the Western business world does and you sort of either have to conform and be okay with it and work with what you got or like me I eventually became resourceful and said hey if we need to move if we want to move forward in this project we need to find other resources did you did you run that's really really interesting did you run into anything graphic design wise where I was thinking more like words or or like language well I guess you had a lot of local people working for you but just anything like colors and color combinations and language uh the way it would be written or or um pop culture references that you needed to put into your graphic design work that maybe was was a little out of your scope that you really had to kind of 
develop that over time just by living and being immersed in the culture? Yes. Yeah. All of, all of that were definitely uh, things that we would, you know, take for granted on our day to day. Those I faced every day, you know, it was, how do I make this on an international level for this brand sound and look knowledgeable, sophisticated, know what we're talking about, um, you know, that the products were authentic, et cetera. And how do I also cater to a local culture who was, you know, where we were based? Um, thank goodness, Hong Kong is a, was a territory for a very long time of, the, you know, the UK. And so everyone speaks English. Everyone speaks and writes English. And there's levels of it, obviously. But in the business setting, it's required. So there was never really like language barriers in terms of that kind of obstacle. But um I, I did grab assistance all the time. I was having people translate, you know, certain so that I could create graphics. And I said, you know, just make sure that the characters are all lined up where I need to, and I can just copy and paste. And we worked out many different ways on how to make sure the communication was being executed um, in the correct way and the meaning would be the same. Um, colors and that sort of thing, it was, it was best if you showed examples. Uh, I was doing a lot of research on Pinterest and sharing those pictures and uh, pictures definitely, you know, speak thousands of volumes of words than just emails back and forth. Uh, I found a lot of times I was doing in-person conversations rather than sending directives using email because of the language barrier sometimes. So I don't know if that's entirely your question, but yeah, yeah, yeah. that's kind of more what I was I was thinking was more like Chinese New Year, working around those different holidays and different cultural moments that throughout the year that are really important to the to the community that you're selling to, and just and just kind of getting to know that during your time there. As someone, I know you had time in the Philippines, but as someone who was new to Hong Kong per se, so yeah, that totally answered my question. Cool. Well, I know that you have done a lot of different types of things. And we spoke to this in the beginning. You've worked for fashion, and then you've also worked at Saddleback, which you mentioned, but you stayed on with them in some capacity. I just think those two things are so different. I mean, uh, fashion industry and and the wide variety of things that the fashion industry encompasses, and and then a really large church like Saddleback. So what's it like to adjust to each different client and how do you change your design style based on your industry? That's a great question. (laughs) Uh, I, I mean, going from fashion to switching to the role I had at Saddleback and even purpose-driven communications, which was a publishing um, company. And then now at a healthcare tech company doing in-house marketing, um, you're servicing a client, you know, and that process is always the same. Uh, I definitely have a gift for adapting to the different, you know, target markets and types of needs of the clients. And that's something that has always come naturally for me. And I don't really have a hard time with the adaptation. I, I do, um, it does take a little bit of mindset set shift, especially if I have to do it in the same day. 
<laughs> so like, um, you know, in the daytime, I'm doing marketing materials and presentations and preparing for trade shows. And then I come home and I am making, you know, graphics for a, a, a local, a small business company that they need maybe gifts or something like that. Uh, it takes a little bit of, for me to like sort of switch that part of my brain, so to speak. And also say, oh, you know what? In the morning, you're targeting B2B, business to business clients. And now you're you're targeting grandmas. You know, it's like <laughs> you have to really tell yourself, like, who am I talking to? And then as soon as I kind of that clicks on in my brain, then I'm able to, okay, move forward and, and see what I got. And sometimes what I make is trash. And sometimes it takes me 20 minutes to come up with an idea and it's right on the money and they don't need any revisions. And that's when, you know, what you're doing is fulfilling and magical and all, all of those great things. So it really, it really just depends on the client. Some clients you may think you may go in and you think about what they're trying to do and you're like, Oh, this is going to be really easy. And then you go through the process and it's the most difficult ever. And then sometimes you get these huge clients who you think they're going to be very difficult and they end up being the quickest and easiest process. So it's really case by case. Well, that's good. I always think I grew up doing theater and I know we sing and, and all creative and all art kind of speaks to each other. But I always thought it was kind of like just acting. You know, you like jump into your role and you're that 25-year-old guy who wants to get a drink at the bar with his buddies or whatever it is. Um, and you're kind of like putting on that that hat for a couple minutes and thinking, okay, what would this guy look for? What would he like? What colors would he like? What font would speak to him? Um, and that's obviously so different from from you and I, but... Uh, but it's kind of like just pretending. Yeah, exactly. So when you go to pitch those different styles, once you've adapted and you've kind of like created the first draft or um, even before that, actually, when you're, when you're just stylizing, let's say they want to rebrand, how do you kind of position the client or how do you showcase those different opportunities to the client? Do you do mood boards or, or what's that? What's that like? Yeah. Uh, it So again, it depends on who I'm catering to. For example, my current job, the brand is already established. So I'm just basically the brand police and I'm making sure that everything is looking consistent all the time. You know, whether it's fonts, whether it's our color palette, uh, whether it's our PowerPoint slides, they all look the same. That's my job to just comb over everything and call things out. Um, when you are starting fresh, let's say for a f- freelance client, depending on their needs, some some people, they want the full package. So you want to create um, the mood boards. You definitely want to go through a, a design brief with them. And it's it's very similar to a business plan. You go through the same filters like what's the background the overview what's your objectives who's your target audience the message the tone uh scheduling meaning your timeline and uh your budget of course uh but what i've encountered in my life is that it really comes down to the the top three which is your objective your target audience and your budget and of course 
if you're just starting out and you're a super small business and you don't have a ton of money, budget is going to be your number one. And that usually affects how much uh, I'm going to design for you. So I've, I've learned to sort of premise it like this. This is my this is my rate and this is my process. But if you have a budget, we'll work backwards from that. And so what ends up happening is I concept and I usually will give three ideas. Three is usually a nice round magic number for people. Four is too much. Two is mm-hmm. too little. <laughs> and they, they will choose nine times out of 10, they will choose one direction. And then you sort of drill down that road. And sometimes they want to see the whole process. And sometimes they just want to see the end result. Um, And that's really just preference. And obviously, I'm just the magic person getting what's in their head down on the paper or on the computer. And that's normally what I've gotten used to. I mean, I've had freelance clients that I've never met in person, just over the phone and email and executed their, you know, their request flawlessly. And there are people I've met in person. We've met several hours and we brainstorm ideas. And at the end, they just decide, you know what, this is not going the way I had hoped or envisioned. And then we part ways, no hard feelings. So (laughs) it's like, I think, People go into it with an expectation, especially new business people looking for a brand identity, Um, but they don't know the design process, so they don't know. It actually takes a long time. You really want a good logo, a good solid brand, a minimum of six months is super ideal because especially now there's so many platforms to be putting your brand on. You want to make sure it looks right in every environment. So if you don't do that testing in that six-month period, which goes along with developing the brand, then you're going to like develop a logo in a week, put it on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, et cetera, all of those places, and decide it doesn't look great on Facebook, but it looks great on your website. What Then what do you right. do? Then, then you have to backtrack, and then you spend more money than you expected in your budget because you weren't willing to to go down that normal path of answering all of these questions. I love that you broke that down. I think that's why I wanted to start this podcast that talks about creativity in a strategic way because creativity and strategy, they are always together. And sometimes the strategic part, like you said, it doesn't allow you to create to your full desire to your heart's content sometimes the budget gets in the way but that's reality and that's being a strategic business and if you know that out of the three options that you presented three is it's awesome but it's like slightly too expensive then you're going to have to adjust based on strategic principles based on your objective and your target market you can't just go out there and start creating and like you said just throwing things up on Facebook and doing things piecemeal Uh, you can but it really hurts in the end it's so much better to be strategic in every aspect and to have the creative flair too creativity is is of course important I think we all I think we all understand that but um I think you just like nailed that combination the way you just said that (laughs) 
Yeah, you're so you're so right. I mean, there's I mean, Star, there's so many ways to get a logo now. There's Fiverr, Fiverr.com. Yeah. There's, you know, you can you can source from guru or freelancer.com. Um, Canva, you can pick a generic logo and make one there. And I've seen people do that and and create even their resume through that. And there's nothing wrong with it. Absolutely not. But if you're serious about your brand and your business, you're you're going to outgrow that easy fix. It's just a Band-Aid. Right. Be, and, and because budget is is holding you back. Um, or, or just because you don't feel like it's important. But when you become this big name brand and then people are like, oh, how'd you come up with your logo? And you're like, oh, I made it on Canva. Well, that's great. <laughs> but, but there's no story. There's no, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect you and, and your vision and, and who you are and why you got into the business that you're doing. So right. that's, that's why branding is important. But it's hard because now you can even brand yourself, your, your, your person, your character, who you are is a brand as well. And that looks so crazy to some people. And some people it's like, oh, it's just me, like my name. So Yeah, I always try to like demystify that too by just reminding people of, I don't know, their favorite cartoon growing up is a great example. Like Mm -hmm. I'm picking an obscure one, but Kim Possible. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say Kim Possible. (laughs) I could tell you exactly what she wore in every episode. Because her outfit didn't change. And in most cartoons, their outfits don't change. And there's a really obvious reason for that. It's because they are a personality and they are an entity and they are a thing. Like Steve Jobs. We all know what Steve Jobs wore all the time. Simon Cowell. I could tell you exactly what he wears. Ellen DeGeneres. She wears suits. Like I could go on and on. But when you have something that is this thing it becomes an idea it becomes a brand that's really all it is it's just um kind of letting that like stick in someone's mind in a really purposeful way that's really all you're doing when you're branding and you're right it's so important because look at look at how I can remember all those people I can remember the 1-800-EMPIRE song. I mean, just ri- ridiculous things, but... Oh, my gosh. That, or the, the keys on Van Nuys. Yes. <laughs> Car dealers. <laughs> that just over and over. Yeah. Exactly. If you're not from California, then maybe you don't... <laughs> maybe you don't know. <laughs> but, yes, there are just, like, really pr- these purposeful things that are so simple. But, like you're saying, it it all comes from a place of, of, of real thoughtfulness, and it is a really important piece of of your marketing mix. If not, it is the, the marketing mix. Really? I think it's the, it's yeah. the root I of mean, it. I mean, even when your company goes away as successful or unsuccessful as it is, you'll look it up on the internet and you know, it, your legacy is a subpar logo or subpar branding. That's there for life. Right. Or just rebranding over and over over and over and over yeah you'll you'll definitely see that so how do you keep the branding cohesive at or for your clients do you use a style guide I know you're at a established company do you all have a style guide in-house and can you explain what that is for listeners who maybe don't know what that is sure a a style guide is just uh, it it basically comprises of a couple of elements Uh, it outlines your voice, your tone, your writing style, colors, your logo, uh, specifically 
not just showing the logo, but how to use the logo and, and examples of uh, in what scenario can you do, it's basically the do's and don'ts. Uh, typography, your fonts, uh, usually people have primary and secondary fonts, and again, how to use those elements, um, and any other extra design elements, like if, let's just say, if your logo comprises of an icon and the text, uh, how to use both items together and separate, and then any photography. And, and photography is not just uh, you know, these are the kinds of pictures you can take and, and showcase, but the um, style, the lighting, uh, stock photography versus custom photography, etc. So that's usually what a style guide embodies. However, <laughs> that that's the ideal setting. If, if you were to create from scratch your business and you were doing it right, this is great because when you have that guideline, you can send it to anyone you interact with that's actually going to be using your logo or printing it or interacting with any of your marketing materials. And they're going to be repurposing it, let's say, on their website or for a poster that they're doing with you. Um, it's important so that you don't have to explain this every time. You just basically send them this digital PDF and it shows them how to create anything using your logo. Um, in reality, does everyone have a brand guide? No. Uh, and I know people who spent thousands of dollars and even don't even follow their, their guideline. <laughs> so I think from an agency in-house or uh, you know an advertising agency, that's what they're going to give you in a branding package. Uh, whether you actually use it in the real world or any of the vendors that you um, work with, if they use it, that's supposed, that's on you to police. Um, and I think like from an in-house standpoint, as the designer, you become the brand police. You, you definitely are calling out departments and saying, stop using that, you know, bold comic sans. That's not, that's <laughs> not in our bride. And then you remind them and say, this is how you use you know, our font and this is how you make headlines and, and that sort of thing. That's great. Um, and, and in freelance, you can suggest, absolutely suggest a brand guideline, show them, develop it for them, but you can't force them. And I've seen 50-50 of it go both ways where some people are like, thank you so much for teaching me these very foundational, basic things of how to use not only my logo, but design. Um, and other, you know, clients will say, oh, okay, great, this is good information. And then the next day they put the logo on their website and they put a drop shadow and they put a glow and, a, you know, Starburst and all the design disasters. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you paid me and this is how you want to use your, you know, the product that I created for you. And that's fine. I just have to accept that it's not under my control at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I totally get it. I I do marketing <laughs> management, as you know, and uh, we don't have a formal style guide, but it's kind of like tribal knowledge. Like we do have the fonts and and all these things. So um, I I do. We absolutely like will shout that out to our vendors. Like, oh, don't tilt our logo or whatever whatever it is that we that we hold dear and that makes our collateral all look really similar and collateral is just another word for 
like marketing materials really um or our artwork all looks similar so I am a big fan of the style guide and I think it makes everything look really held together so I'm glad that well I think a real world application right now is and this is very relatable because you don't have to be a designer or an artist or anyone to to see this is you go on Instagram and you look at someone's feed and and you hear this all the time. How do they make their feed look so cohesive or the yeah. same? And they think it's very accidental. Many people think that's just that person's style and that's how they like take pictures. Take no, pictures it's not. And, <laughs> and I'm like, no, dear. That is a filter and they're using the same filter on every single photo and they're curating. There's so much more thought coming out to it. And that's really what a style guide is. These are people following and using the same filter, same styling, same lighting, same composition so that they can get that really beautiful, flowy, like unachievable (laughs) Instagram feed that everybody wants. That's such a great way to say it. Like at where I work, we do the same thing. It's down to where do you put the lights? Because I take some of their photos for them too. Where do you put the lights around the food? And we have really specific positioning of the lights around the food. And we have, I, we edit them all very consistently and they all kind of look the same way. And we, we talk about it in advance. So no, it's not just an oopsie. We, we definitely work to make that look that way. <laughs> Well, speaking of creative style, and like you said, you just gave us a hack, so I'm probably like reiterating myself, but I wanted to ask you some design hacks or just really easy to grasp onto defining qualities of good design. I know a lot of it's subjective, but is there anything that you could say that's beyond just a feeling that's kind of just like factual? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're correct. Design art is always subjective. And even when you think you're on the right path, uh, it it's really the rule of 50-50 is always very helpful. 50% of the people are going to like what you do and 50% aren't. And that's when you know you're in a good place. When, And I'm not to say that if 100% like your stuff, uh, it isn't a good place either. It just means you might have not push the envelope. You might have not thought of something that like maybe made the viewer uncomfortable a little bit or made them question, you know, what is the purpose of this specific graphic? Um, and that's what we always want to do. You know, these, some of these um, commercials, they cause like an emotion. And I'm not an emotional person, but sometimes I cry. I want to cry <laughs> at a commercial. and I don't know why, because they've evoked it. They've evoked an emotion, right? So. If, if you're like, oh, this is so beautiful and wonderful, and you kind of just leave very satisfied, that's great. But then you maybe forget about it. But then if something makes you uncomfortable a little bit, that's where it sticks with you. Like, oh, that really, bo- that really bothered me that they said this, or they did this, or they put bright neon green with, you know, beige. I don't know. I'm <laughs> just putting that out there still. Yes, subjective, but also I think the real thing is, are you doing something with purpose? Is it art for art's sake or are you actually doing what it needs to do? So that that means like, 
like you said, you take photography for food, right? If you're taking something that Star thinks looks really beautiful and with this lighting and you take it and, and it's, you're like, oh, this is the best work I've ever done, but it never sells a burger or it never sells a burrito, then you've, you've actually failed, even though if it's a beautiful photo. So then you have to step back and you say, well, why didn't this work? Oh, because the lighting didn't showcase X, Y, and Z. Or you, you know, you ask somebody who's an auto photographer and you're like, would you eat this burrito? Uh, no, because you made it look like unappealing or whatever it was, right? That's just, that's, that's an example because, so then you have to take yourself okay. out of like who you're selling to and you actually have to say, okay, this is, I'm making this design, design decision because I know it's going to portray the service or the product in the best way. Um, in terms of like design hacks, uh, let's say, I don't know. I, I kind of had an idea of this would be more like definitely learn shortcuts. Like shortcuts are the way to go on all applications. Memorize your shortcuts. They save you time. They save you energy. Um, and you get, you get to do this. If you're doing like edits, like a hundred edits, in one hour, you have to get it out and meet a deadline and you're clicking all the time versus knowing your keyboard shortcuts. You know, you're looking at like two hours of work cut down to 30 minutes, maybe. Wow. Exactly. That's a, well, that's a but good that's, example. I think people, people, yeah, people overlook that. Um, I also think work or ergonomics, you know, these like people are doing all these great things with standing desks and, and all that, but you have to make sure that you're taking care of yourself, right? I can sit at a computer and what I like to call drone all day long, like a robot and forget to take a break, forget to blink my eyes, forget to stretch, <laughs> forget to breathe sometimes. Um, and you want to incorporate these habits in your workflow. Um, and honestly, it does affect your design. When you're fatigued, like your 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 brain is not going to be as fresh, so you're you're going to be hitting those walls more often, versus constantly adjusting and paying attention to your body's needs. And you come you walk away, and then you come back, and you have a fresh new idea. Sometimes, you just need like new eyes, right? So yeah, I, it's kind of related. It's kind of not. <laughs> But they help me. No, I think that's great. Like I do the same thing. I sit sometimes in my bed. I'm like hunchbacked and it just, it's, it gets a a little ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, get a pillow, um, get a, get a desk or a chair that, that makes you feel good. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Get up, take a break, eat lunch. I mean, go to the bathroom, do what you need to do. (laughs) It's so funny. I'm the same way. So I totally get that. Well, you mentioned a side hustle a couple of times. You freelance on the side, and I think that's amazing. I I think it's so fulfilling when you get to do something a little outside of the box of what you do as a regular nine to five. I think it's really fulfilling in a way. So can you tell us how you land your freelance accounts and kind of those different facets of what what the process is like? and how your sure. design process changes based on the medium like social media to corporate okay uh 
I will say at the beginning, I was I was definitely chasing the side hustle. And when I say chasing, I was listing myself on all the different various websites, including like headhunters and just saying I'm open for contract work. And it gets exhausting <laughs> when you have a full-time job and like trying to chase clientele. I just said, you know what? This is great when it works out and the extra money is amazing, but it's not worth my um, stressing out to find that next client who's actually going to pay me. You know, that was that was probably the hardest part was getting paid in earlier in my career. Now that I've and I'm an established designer, people are like, oh, yeah, that's that's her career. She's just not a hobby artist. You know, it's it's actually she gets paid to do this and is successfully, surprisingly. Um, and so now I have a little, I have more clout and it's easier because clients come to me. So a lot of it is word of mouth. And sometimes I work with a client very successfully. They refer me and then the referral ends up fizzling out or it just doesn't work out. We don't have, we're not on the same page or the budget isn't right, whatever the criteria just doesn't work out. And I don't ever take it personally. I just know that timing is everything. And really when you do click with a freelance client, it just makes sense. And you want to take on that. It's not a burden. It's not a, Oh, I have to do this because it was referred by so-and-so. It just, it just kind of organically happens. And I've had the pleasure of working with some amazing uh, companies, some small businesses, some bigger, and they've all just worked out. Um, and again, mostly word of mouth, which has been such a blessing. The current uh, project that I'm on right now is a three-month contract project. And they brought me in actually as a project manager. And when I learned about more about their business, they had some other needs that they needed. And so I, I fill in some of the gaps in terms of social media design and, and generating content and actually engaging with their community, which is what they were lacking in. And um, just really kind of stepping up every day and saying, what are your needs and how can I you know, fulfill that. And I've, I've worked hard to get to be able to offer that. I, I kind of offer not just graphic design. I do come a lot with business strategy, marketing strategy. Because I've worked on e-commerce, I understand like the needs of a lot of these, you know, businesses that are just starting out and only selling online and what that entails. So I understand the business side because I've tried to do that myself and for other people, but then I also know the design side. And so there's this really like unique niche that I'm hitting for um, a lot of new clients that I've been taking on. And they're like, wow, most designers wouldn't even care about, you know, analytics and yeah. <laughs> how well is this ad doing, et cetera. But because I understand the e-commerce market, um, it's given me, it's leveled up me just not as a graphic designer but someone who actually can contribute more. Yeah, so. I think that is so awesome, Rochelle. And that's so smart. And I think more and more clients are looking for someone who can kind of speak both languages. Like I do sales and marketing, but whenever I'm doing something marketing, um, I'm always thinking about sales. 
And I think sometimes people shy away from that. Well, we we really don't want to sound so salesy in this post or whatever it is. And I think, why not? We're a business. People know we're going to sell to them. It's okay to ask. It's okay to, to kind of direct and give a call to action. That's all right. Don't be afraid. And I remember... I remember being an intern. When I said I worked at Paxson, I was an intern right in the middle of college when I was studying fashion. And I remember sitting in on a meeting and I think it was with someone in their e-commerce department and they were showing us two different designs and the design team wanted the words that said 50% off or it was some sort of sale promo. It was the most important wording on the page 50% off it was so big and they wanted it to be black and the rest of the text was black the rest of the copy was black and then there was a different version where it was red and the red of course was not as aesthetically pleasing but they asked me and the other intern which one do you think we should do we want red the uh, designers want black and we both said well it didn't even see the black so it has to be red but it's like those moments right. where you, you're saying, I'm really conscious of analytics and what people are looking at and selling and and kind of more of the entrepreneurial side as well. When you're conscious of those things, you can make those decisions that that move the needle. Like you said, if I took a picture of a burger, right. I thought it was pretty, but it didn't sell anything, then I didn't do my job. Right. I think... Um, you know, going back to what I had said earlier was, you know, art for art's sake. And a lot of times you want to value your your client's time and money. Okay. So this is not your money. You can have the attitude of like, they're paying me for this and the ad wasn't effective. That's not my problem. Mm, That's, it's kind of your problem because you designed it and it was an ineffective ad. And so asking the question, like people are always shocked at me, like, why do you want to know how many click-throughs that ad had? You just had to design it. I said, I want to know if I executed successfully. Did people actually click and go to your website and buy something and interact or whatever whatever the goal was? Did it happen? And if it didn't, then I need to fix what I, what I did because you spent money on that. And I think that a lot of designers don't think that way. They're just like, hey, I got paid for a job, whatever. The result is that's your problem. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of make it a little bit of my problem to understand that part because I, I want them to come back at the end of the day and say, Rochelle was really good at to work with, not just as a designer, but someone who's really invested in my business the way I am and values, you know, what I'm trying to do and, and our vision and et cetera. And then you get repeat business. So I I've have clients who come back to me every couple months out of the blue. Oh, I need help with this. No questions asked. They don't even ask my rate anymore. They don't ask how long it's going to take nothing. They just, they pay me and I get the job done and we move on with our lives. And it's because I take the time to, you know, ask these other questions beyond doing a service, beyond giving them a a design. I love that. That is such gold, Rochelle. Okay, well, I have one more question. I feel like you've given us so much already, but if there's one thing that a listener could walk away from this podcast, from this episode with today, what would it be? What's your one piece of advice that you want to tell a young up-and-coming creative? 
There's so many. <laughs> you can't do just one. I know. Um, okay, I guess, can I give bullet points? Can I yeah, just do, do like, really Rapid fire. Rap- yes. Let's rapid do this. Um, <laughs> my, one of my favorite sayings from, you know, our pastoric, like, leaders or learners, always constantly be learning. Uh, definitely take risks. And I think taking risks also means saying no to good opportunities so you can say yes to great ones. Don't feel like you always have to say yes. Um, And especially when it's not in line with your moral compass. And that's something recently that I have incorporated more is like, you know, maybe I don't have a problem with someone who vapes, but maybe there's a fine line there in something of a product or a messaging that your values don't align with and you don't always have to say yes just because you're looking for the paycheck. Um, And then at the end of the day, always just be authentic, be real and just say, don't oversell (laughs) and just say, oh, I'll get that done in 24 hours. No, if it really takes 48 hours, say it because they, they came to you for a service and they can't do it themselves. So you need to give realistic expectations and you also have to tell them, what your boundaries are. And I think that comes ultimately down to authenticity. So those would be my. That, I love, I love <laughs> that. I love that. I just had someone call me to consult for them and um, their product was not something that I believed in or that fit within my realm of, I don't know, my comfort zone. It was just, it was just, pretty pretty out there so I told them that I respect them so much and I politely declined and I said like what I think you really need is someone who really really truly believes in this who subscribes to this who who kind of eats sleeps breathes what it is that you what it is that you're selling here and I'm just not the right person so there are ways to be respectful but yeah if something doesn't align with with you then it's probably better for them too to find someone who's like all about it and excited about right. it then they right. design from a, right. a point of just being stoked to design for something they love so much yeah no that's absolutely tr- true and I think what people think that maybe turning something down like that would not be a big deal if if you did do it and you weren't 100% comfortable with it and then you put it on your portfolio and then maybe you got another great opportunity and that person was against it and you were against it from the beginning then you you've already then ruined another a future opportunity so you don't want to ever put yourself in a position of where you're going to question was that the right thing to do just if it in your gut, in your heart, it's just not good. Don't do yeah. it. No, I, I totally agree. Thank you so much, Michelle, for chatting with us today. I feel like I learned so much and I'm sure our listeners did too. How can everyone find you or reach out to you if they want to ask you to do work for them? Yeah, I am at Rochelleser. So it's my first and last name smashed together, R-O-C-H-E. L-L-I-C-E-R and all the platforms. And my portfolio website is RochelleLoves.design. And there's a there's a slew of work on there, but you'll get the idea. That's great. <laughs> of what I do. Well, everyone go yeah. check her out. And thank you again, Rochelle. Guys, 
I learned so much from Rochelle. My mind is just full of information. I need to go. I need to write notes on this. <laughs> you know that I'll always have the show notes ready for you all. They're on my website, starjerrys.com backslash the creative strategist. Under Rochelle's episode, you'll be able to find the show notes that basically are just a, a snapshot of some things that she said, really key takeaways. And as always, I invite you all to start a conversation with me. Slide into those DMs. Message me on my Facebook page. Write me an email. My email is also on my Instagram. Or just contact me through the contact page on my website. I love talking to you all about these things. If you have specific questions as it pertains to either this episode or another one in the past, still hit me up. I really, really love talking to you all. Believe me, you are not bothering me. Well, I hope you all got as much out of that as I did. Thanks again to Rochelle for coming on the show and just feeding us so much information. We appreciate you, girlfriend. Thank you for listening to The Creative Strategist. Head over to starjerrys.com backslash the creative strategist for notes on today's episode information about upcoming events, or to nominate a guest for the show. Don't forget to leave a review and share this podcast with a friend or colleague. Thanks again for hitting play. See you next time, creative strategist.